Well, good morning, everybody. Again, welcome to Park Hill Church. Uh, my name is Evan. Uh, my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church with uh, Aaliyah and her husband, Matt, and a fantastic team. And so we are a church that gathers on Sunday, and we scatter all over the city in communities, in communities. That is our heartbeat. That's our rhythm, uh, gathering and scattering. And so if you want to know about that, just like Aaliyah said, go to the Connect table. We would love to talk with you about what it looks like to become uh, a deep part of the Park Hill Church family in that way. Um, so we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. So please, uh, your Bibles, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Remember, it's a letter written by Paul, the apostle, to this little church in a city similar to San Diego, okay? Corinth and San Diego share a lot in common. And, and the church is forgetting who they are, okay? They're, they're forgetting who they are. And before I go any further, I want to say this. Two things. First thing, whenever there's a plane, I love what Benji uh, led us in when he preached here a couple weeks ago. Whenever there's a plane, we pause and we center ourselves with the Lord's Prayer, just privately. I love that practice. Uh, it's a great opportunity to be like, okay, I'm back in it. Um, and the second thing, I said this last week. Today's text is heavy. Okay? And there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we're going to sing a, a little bit at the end, but there's a lot of ground to cover, and it might even be difficult to hear. But I humbly ask that you suspend judgment, stick it out to the end, okay, because Paul is going for our hearts in love in this text. And we'll eat the bread and cup together. Also, if you're a parent and you have kids here, you have little kids, today is the content's like PG-13-ish, kind of. So just so you know, if you have small kids, okay. All right, housekeeping done. So this little church is forgetting who they are. They're forgetting that they're loved by a good father, and they're forgetting they belong to a good king, and that they would be ruling and reigning alongside Jesus in a restored earth. They're forgetting their identity and their future. And instead of living that, they're dividing over politics back then and now. And they're dividing over personality and celebrity cults. And they're getting distracted over sexual ethics. That's chapters 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians. Very similar to our day. And in the beginning of chapter 6, like we saw last week, they're even starting to sue each other in the church. Like, like Jesus' family members suing each other in secular courtrooms. And so Paul's letting this church know the sad thing about all this is by grasping for material advantage in their culture's way, these Christians are missing out on huge reward in God's household, okay? So in verse 9, Paul says it this way, picking right up where we left off last week. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So you remember that from last week. What's a wrongdoer? For Paul, a wrongdoer, it's this attitude, of wanting what I want, when I want it, how I want it, without thought for others, without any sense of delayed gratification, in willful opposition to Jesus' teachings. Okay, that's a wrongdoer. This is not talking about Jesus followers who mess up. That's literally all of us, okay? Uh, this is not talking about people who lapse into bad behavior, even really bad behavior. He's talking 
about people who say they are Jesus followers, but there never seems to be any meaningful Jesus-like change. People who willfully oppose the teachings of Jesus. That is what Paul means by wrongdoer. And according to Paul, wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, wrongdoers will not be there when Jesus comes and makes this world restored. Okay, are you with me? Told you, we're starting heavy. We're getting right into it. Because that posture of wrongdoing, that attitude of wanting what I want, when I want it, how I want it, in willful opposition to Jesus, that is fundamentally inconsistent with our true, self-sacrificial, loved identity as God's kids. Fundamentally incompatible. Okay, this is Paul's major thought process here. Do you want to hear Paul in 10 seconds? This is Paul in 10 seconds. Ready? Fact, promise, command. Fact, as a Jesus follower, you're in Christ. The promise which means you'll be raised with Christ, command, therefore live like it. That's Paul. 13 letters in the New Testament for sure written by Paul. You can sum up his core heart. Fact, promise, command. You're in Christ. You'll be raised with Christ. Therefore live it. We're free to live this Jesus identity now. That's Paul. And and so when you and I were baptized into Jesus's family, the church, we were literally transferred into a new reality, God's kingdom, and given a new identity as a loved child of God under the authority and goodness of the King, Jesus. And in the first half of chapter six, Paul says that our new in Christ identity is incompatible with like suing each other in the church. Remember what we said last week, these are the house rules in God's family. This is important, you guys. This is a family conversation. You know, when you visit someone's house, it's a family conversation and they have family rules. So listen, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we love that you're here. You're welcome. You're an honored guest, okay? We hope you join the family. Until then, you're a guest. And now we get to verse 9 through 20, okay? Paul lists other kinds of wrongdoing. He expands out from just suing each other and he lists other kinds of behavior that doesn't fit our new identity that we have in Jesus. And here it is, verse verse 10, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Good morning. Welcome to church. How's that feel? Cue jet plane at awkward list of sins. So, so this is a daunting list, right? First things first. How do we even begin to wrap our minds around this as 21st century educated Westerners? First things first, there are four Greek words in this passage for different types of sexual sin. Four different Greek words, and they all hinge on one word. It's the first word in the list, and it's translated sexual immorality in your English Bibles, NIV, Uh, It's all kinds of other English translations in history of English Bibles. But the Greek word is pornea. 
pornea. So if we get this word, all the other words start to make sense. Jesus and Paul use this word in the Gospels. All four Gospel writers use this word. The very first church council in Acts 15, they actually vote to forbid pornea for all Christians everywhere, okay? So what is it? Like, what technically is pornea if it's this thing we avoid? So for Jesus followers, we live in a sexualized culture just like Corinth. And so it's important we get this. There's no single English word that brings across the meaning of pornea very well. They're all insufficient. It doesn't just mean fornication, like the old King James. Sexual immorality, what even is that? Like, I don't even know what that means anymore today. Um, So a decent shorthand definition that we use around here is sex with someone you're not married to. But even that falls a little bit short. Gets close, but pornea was way more loaded in the time of the Bible being written. Um, And it's a really good word. It's a really helpful, beautiful word because it brings so much clarity around the beauty of sex and marriage and God's vision for human flourishing. So think of of Bible words like hyperlinks. When you click on, double click on pornea, you double click on that word in the Bible, it jumps you to Leviticus 18. Did you know that's how hundreds, thousands of words in the Bible work for the writers of the Bible? So So you double click on pornea, in the New Testament, and you get Leviticus 18 as a definition, which is what? Leviticus 18 is a detailed and awkwardly explicit list of all kinds of sexual acts, and they all have something in common. They are all outside one man, one woman, lifelong covenant marriage in Leviticus 18. Understand? So when you see the phrase sexual morality in the New Testament, it's essentially a junk drawer word for all sex outside historic Judeo-Christian male-female monogamous lifelong marriage. This is the original intent of the word that the Holy Spirit inspired in our Bibles. So when Paul kicks off this list of wrongdoing with the word pornea here, he is intentionally and clearly standing with the rest of the scriptures On what? On this. That great sex is not what our culture says it is. What does our culture say great sex is? A pleasurable recreational activity between consenting adults, right? Like play for grown-ups. That's what our culture views it as. But that's actually a really, really low view of sex. It's way more than that. Biblically, Sex is a whole person connection between a husband and wife to express, confirm, and deepen marital intimacy. This is the unanimous witness of Scripture, not to mention 2,000 years of church history. So there's no such thing as casual sex in, in, in the Bible or anywhere. Sex is actually powerful. Sex is always powerful. It's never casual. It's so powerful, in fact, that the only container strong enough to hold the raw nuclear force of human sex is marriage according to Jesus. So in the scriptures, there is no sex outside of marriage. There's only pornea. That makes sense. This is the worldview of the Bible, and this is what Paul is saying 
when he uses this word. Okay, take a deep breath. Got all that. That's all good. Okay, we we went through that. Now, the next thing I want to point out right away, Paul doesn't make a bigger deal out of sexual sin than other sins here. This is just as important to say. Because once we've defined... Once we've defined the terms, once we understand pornea, you have to realize Paul doesn't like put it on a pedestal and say that's really bad, more than the others. Understand that. Because here's why this is important, you guys. Sadly, much of the modern American church has made a bigger deal out of sexual sin than the other sins, which has often created a culture of shame around sexuality which has demonized people, especially LGBTQ people, who are looking, just longing for a family to belong to and walk with. And for this elevation of sexual sin over the others, for this obsession about it, we have to repent as a church. We have to apologize and check our own hypocrisy. So if you're here and you are an LGBTQ person, please hear me right now. You belong here. You belong here. We need you here in God's family. We need your perspective, your lived experiences, your unique story of suffering and sacrifice as the church of Jesus in this cultural moment. Here's the, here's the challenge for San Diego, just like Corinth. Here's, here's the hard part. This is a challenge. We must both uphold Jesus' vision for historic marriage, and repent of elevating certain sexual sins while minimizing all our own, which are a hundred times more common. You hear that? This is a balance we need to strike. Like, Paul's doing this. What would it look like if our church treated greed just as seriously as it treats sex outside of historic marriage? What would that look like? Like, withholding generosity is just as serious of a sin as any other. What would that look like? What about gossip, which is in this list as slander? What if we treated gossip the same way we treated a porn addiction? How would we then live? Or at least how, how would we then openly live, I should say? What about getting drunk? He actually throws that in the list too. I mean, here's the point. Paul wants us to get honest here. What sinful behaviors do I tend to minimize? Because the last thing I want to do as God's child is minimize behavior that keeps me from God's household. This is not Paul being like a helicopter parent here. This is Paul celebrating life in Jesus. Paul is dying for us all to know that the creator, your maker, has revealed his genuine model for humanity in Jesus. Jesus is the model. Jesus' life. And if we want to flourish in God's family, then there are certain behaviors that do not fit Jesus' life. This is the heart here. In Mark Sayer's words, a friend of mine, he says, we can't have the kingdom without the king. Now, I want to say right away, talking about sin has always been hard. It's always been contentious and controversial even at times, even in the church. Because every generation has blind spots. 
You can think of the blind spots of your parents' generation. It's easy to, to moan about the boomer generation or the builders or whatever and, and not necessarily be as quick to critique millennial or whatever. And this is how every generation works. All of us are arrogant and need humility, all of us. And, and so emotions run high when we talk about sin, especially when strong desire is involved. This is how we are. And there's a huge reason for this, and this is true for all of us. People tend to react and feel defensive, me included. I tend to feel defensive when something I've assumed was perfectly fine, and I was even told is perfectly fine, and it's being declared to me as being wrong. All my defenses go up. This is the perfectly natural human response, okay? If that is, like, when we hear teachings from Jesus that conflict with our own views, what kind of sexual activity is acceptable, or letting him critique our Western greed, our American version of greed, or drunkenness, or the way we talk about and gossip about people, when we're confronted, if you've ever felt defensive at Jesus' teachings, then welcome to the club. You are a human <laughs> And you are a normal human being, and the Spirit loves you, and He's inviting you away from our own opinions and deeper into God's love. All of us. He's asking for your trust, even if it doesn't all make sense yet. That's literally Abraham. Go to a land I'll show you. Where is it? How do I get there? Just walk, and I'm with you. He's asking for that kind of trust, even when it doesn't make sense. Scholar N.T. Wright says it this way, as all serious moral thinkers know, it is desperately easy to be deceived on these issues, to fool ourselves into believing that all is well. All of us. This is why Paul starts this passage by saying, do not be deceived. Because it's possible to be on the wrong road without even realizing it. I don't even want to bother checking my map. This drive is awesome. I'm listening to music or whatever. But don't be deceived, Paul says, which means, you guys, it's not enough to be authentic. It's not enough to be sincere about your convictions. There is a such thing as being sincerely wrong. Every war in human history, right? Every war is full of people on both sides who believe they're 100% right in what they were killing and dying for. None of us are immune from self-deception. And add to this, all the different voices and influences around us, and my goodness, do we need clarity from God. We need light. We need one another. We need the scriptures. We need the witness of the church. We need the Holy Spirit through all of that. So desperately. Because we need to remind each other who we are. And who we're loved by. And what family we're a part of. And whose table this is. It's not our table, it's Jesus's. And this is exactly what Paul says in the next verse. Verse 11. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Come on. <laughs> so powerful. Paul, Paul is saying, this is not about a list of rules. It's not about a list of rules that if you break them, you won't get in. No, it's all about a kingdom that's rolling along and is beautiful and it's filled with humans who will perfectly reflect Jesus' image. 
And any current behavior that distorts that image will lead you in the opposite direction. This is what Paul is saying. It's not a question of, well, is this technically a sin and what can I get away with? That's the wrong line of questioning. Way better question, who am I becoming by what I am doing today? Who am I becoming by what I am doing? Is this behavior shaping me into the loving, other-centered, self-sacrificial vision of Jesus? Because that's the only kind of behavior that can exist in the kingdom. And so right now in this moment, Paul's like, hey, God has made a way for every single person, regardless of past or present. God has made a way for every person to leave their past and present and move forward into God's future. You can be washed, he says. You can be washed through baptism, no matter what your past is. And you can belong in God's special family. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be brought into a special people that God loves. And you can be justified. Those are the three words he uses. Justified. I declare you forgiven. I declare you clean. I declare you mine. This offer is for everyone. And by agreeing with Jesus, by admitting our need of his forgiveness and submitting to his authority and goodness, we get a whole new identity and future. This is what happens when a person is baptized into Jesus, you guys. Can't wait for our next baptism. We're tossing around how that'll work in COVID. I don't know how baptism works in COVID yet. We're trying to figure it out, but I can't wait for it. It's going to be amazing. And as we, as we kind of turn the corner towards the end of this talk, remember why Paul's writing. All that is true. You're washed. You're special people. You're declared righteous. But remember why he's writing. This church is forgetting who they are. They're not living and rejoicing and celebrating who they are. They're forgetting who they are. Instead of living like Jesus, they're living like Corinth. And since America is so similar to Corinth, this next part really reads like it's written to America. Um, Verse 12. Paul says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul's quoting their favorite lines back at them here. So so right away in verse 12, Paul sees their pushback. He's like, hey, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm free. This is a free country. Get your laws off my body or whatever. Like, I know that's Corinth. That is America. That is us. That is, we know this. We resonate with this. And and the idea today is in a free country, consenting adults should be able to do whatever we want with our bodies as long as we think we're not hurting anyone else. Paul's like, yeah, I hear that. I know that's very common. Um, And and Paul's like, "But, but it's not exactly true. Not exactly. Yes, you might be free. Absolutely. But don't confuse Corinthian freedom with Christian freedom. It's kind of like today. American cultural freedom is freedom from authority for independence, right? What was our first, what, what, what was written on our first flag, the earliest? Don't tread on me, right? I mean, it's baked into our DNA. And so in our culture, Freedom, it's, freedom is from authority for autonomy. But Christian freedom is entirely different. 
Christian freedom is freedom from sin for loving relationship with God and others every time. This is Paul's point. Yes, sure, you can flaunt your rights, but not everything is beneficial to you or to your community. This is Paul's point here. And there are many bodily practices that can actually begin to control us. And we can be mastered. That's why it says, yeah, everything's free, but I won't be mastered by everything. There are practices we can give ourselves to that actually make us forfeit our Christian freedom to love people well. Huge message in 1 Corinthians and a huge message for American Christians. Paul brings up a second popular saying in verse 13. He says, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. <laughs> and so this is apparently a famous quote and they were using it to they were using it to apply to sex. And they were saying, well, sex is for the body, the body for sex. So consensual, casual sex is fine in the church. I'm free in Christ, covered in grace. No more guilt or shame over my body because I'm a child of God, right? This was the attitude. And Paul's like, actually, again, not exactly. Not exactly. Because in the second half of verse 13, he says, the body, however, is not made for pornea, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul's painting this beautiful vision of human flourishing. What is your body for? What are our bodies for? That's the question behind this passage. And his resounding answer, it's for the king. Your body is for the king, Jesus. Our bodies are meant for him, and he's for our bodies. He actually views our bodies with passionate love and affection. And he grounds this in the resurrection in the next verse. It's crazy. Somehow Paul sees our relationship with Jesus, not just as this spiritual, you know, when I meditate, I meet God and I'm in, I'm in a spiritual relationship with God or whatever. No, he sees we're in a physical relationship with God. And don't immediately go to sexual. That's too minimalistic. We're in this whole physical person relationship with God. Jesus wants to know you physically, spiritually, mentally, your, your wiring, your gifting, everything about you, all the way down to everything that makes you you. He's into you, okay? He wants to know you and work through you fully. Your mind, your body, your sexuality, your spirit, your talents, your desires. He wants, he wants you now and he wants to work through you now and in the whatever's to come. God has good desires for your body. Not just your soul, but the whole you. He's so good. Listen to how Paul says it in verse 14 through 17. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. This is his grounding, the resurrection. We don't just go to heaven when we die and float with like harp playing babies and halos. We're literally going to raise bodily with Jesus. And God's interested in our whole bodies. Verse 15, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, he says. And by the way, he talks about prostitution here because that was way, way more culturally acceptable than it even is today. Uh, back then in Corinth, uh, they didn't, you know, have the internet, uh, 
you, know, you put two and two together, this, this was the equivalent of pursuing sex outside of marriage. It was mainly prostitution in those days. And so he pulls that example and he's like, shall I take the member of Christ, my body, which is joined with Christ and join it with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her? Spirit to spirit, body to body, something more than just casual activity. For it is said, and he quotes Genesis, the two will become one flesh. It's beautiful what our bodies are made to do. God is super into it. But he says, verse 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And the point here, you belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. You're part of his body in some mystical, powerful way. His body and his body, the church. There's so many layers of beauty to this, you guys. And and for Paul, this means your union with Jesus' body can actually be damaged by inappropriate unions with other bodies. This is Paul. This is powerful right now. What does this mean for us today? This means that you cannot belong to Messiah and to Pornia simultaneously. This is his argument here. This means there's no such thing as casual sex. This means what you do sexually, you are doing with your whole person, not just one part. This means as a Jesus follower, whether you're single, married, gay, straight, whatever, your sexuality is just as important as the spiritual part of you. And guess what? Jesus wants it all. He's into it. He wants all of you. He wants to be Lord of the whole you. There's no part of your body or your sexuality that Jesus thinks is dirty or deserving of shame. He wants to know you and work through all of you. And this leads to the command. Here's the command, verse 18. So flee from pornea, he says. All sexual activity outside of what Jesus has designed our bodies for. Flee. And he says, all the other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So that's the call in this passage. What does that call look like for you? What does it look like to cut and run? Whatever sexual temptation looks like in your life, there's zero wisdom in arguing with it, negotiating with it, or like trying to battle it alone. You run from it period. Remember, this is a family conversation, and this is a difficult one for me to preach in the open air in an urban area, but here we are. So let me channel Paul right now. Let me channel Paul. I beg you, brothers and sisters, we are joined as the body of Christ. I beg you, if it's sexual activity and it's not between you and your spouse, it is dehumanizing you. Cut and run. Cut and run. Come on. What does this mean practically? I I love the five practical steps from Craig Rochelle. Number one, confess before God like David did. Bring your emotion to God. Bring your struggle to God. Number two, confess to the right people. This is why we have communities. Confess to the right people, the people that are out to speak the truth about you. God's love into your life. Number three, remove the triggers. This is the flee part. Remove the triggers. 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talked about, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. He's, he's using euphemism there. <laughs> he's not advocating self-harm there. He's advocating serious fleeing from that which will control you and rob you of the freedom to be loving, contributing in the kingdom. And so number four, number four, once you've removed the triggers, get help. Get help. Make the phone call. Email the therapist. Schedule the rehab. Get it done. Come on. You cannot fix a sex addiction alone. You just can't. It doesn't work that way. Get help. And then finally, let God heal the wound. It could go back into your childhood. It could go whatever. It could be generational. It could be something you were exposed to against your will. Whatever. Let God in. It is, he wants you. He wants your sexuality. He wants your sexuality and your body and your heart and your brain and your mind. He wants all of it in his kingdom. He wants to live inside of you. Is it easy to do this? Is it, is it easy to cut and run? Uh, no. You might be fleeing this your whole life, but with the empowering spirit dwelling with you, there's freedom and joy and healing, which is exactly how Paul ends. Here's how he ends. Verse 19 and 20, he says, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Back in chapter 3, Paul said the church is God's temple. What's a temple? It's a house of a deity in those days. And, and God's like, I don't want a building anymore. I want a people. I want to live with a people. Whenever you gather as a community, that's where I want to be. I want to never leave. That's like my address now. And now he's saying your body is actually a temple. You individually, not just corporately. But God wants to live in you and know every part about you. He's into you and he's after you in love. The Holy Spirit wants to be so close with you that he makes his home in your body. This is just as crazy as it sounds, you guys. If you're like me and you grew up in the church, it doesn't sound crazy anymore. We're numb to it. Your body is the house of the Spirit who created the cosmos. Crazy. It, it, I, I would encourage you, if you're, um, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, first of all, I, many kudos to you for sitting through this. Uh, a million points and gold stars. Um, but if, you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're here, then after the gathering, you need to tell someone how nuts and crazy it sounds that God wants to make your human body his own temple. Tell someone that, what does that even, ask good questions that, Long-time Christians don't think about because we're numb to the wonder. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't just have a connection with God. You don't just talk to him through prayer and like phone call him or dial up or whatever. No, like God takes up permanent residence in your body. And yes, we can grieve him with our activity, but we can't like take a vacation or ask him to take a vacation from us. There's nowhere else he'd rather be than in you, with you, loving you reminding you who you are. Nowhere else he'd rather be. So our rights died on a cross with Jesus's broken body. 
where our bodies were bought by his blood. <laughs> this, is the, this is the ending of Paul. Our rights died with Jesus' broken body on a cross where our bodies were bought by his blood. And now the Spirit chooses to live in us because we have this new Father that we honor with our bodies. Okay, so can we stand together? And so question for reflection. As we come to the table, just I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have us take 30 seconds just to be still in his presence. What behaviors, like destructive, non-kingdom behaviors, do I tend to minimize? Just close your eyes and take a deep breath. And maybe ask yourself, ask the Spirit, He's here. What embodied practices, Jesus practices, have I forgotten? Scripture reading, fasting, types of prayer, maybe, maybe a hike in nature like connects you with God and you used to do it regularly. What embodied practices can you take up again? With your community even, to physically remind us that we're loved. And finally, what would it look like for all of us to bring our sexuality to Jesus with joy? What would that look like more fully, to bring our sexuality more fully to Jesus? We're going to come to the table now. Remember, it's Jesus' physical body is why we're here. <laughs> we're here because of what happened to Jesus's physical body. Thank you, Jesus. I pray, Lord, if there is anything spoken, it wasn't heard or wasn't spoken right. Lord, thank you for your grace. I pray that you would uh, continue to bring our community into Christ's likeness and image and grace. And this conversation is not an easy one, but it's important to you. So it's important to us. We want to love you with our heart, soul, mind, strength. Every part of our humanness is yours. Every part of your humanness was killed so that we might be made alive. And your body was raised so that we would have hope. Thank you, God.